morning coffee is kicking in and we are ready to blast off on this q a i mean yeah unfortunately guests dropped out this week couldn't get the schedules right and so i just kind of thought this would be funny um and yeah some of the questions we got are pretty wild we're talking about a bit of republicanism sobriety uh skateboarding rites of passage all the good shit man and hopefully i'll produce some interesting answers that are good for people sorry if i sound a bit muggy i have just woken up and it is a humid humid belfast morning it's like the amazonian jungle in here at the moment it is dare i say it moist i'm sorry if you're listening to this early in the morning that's probably ruined your day but anyway let's kick off with the first question we got here which is if you could be any human in all of history for 24 hours who would it be and why this is a pretty hard question um first of all i just kept thinking of people that were dead but not just like i suppose everybody in history is dead that's kind of a dumb thing to say but ones that were actually killed i was like ah, martin luther king would be pretty sick wouldn't mind the old dishing out a few speeches you know but then i was like but then he gets shot and i was like oh what about jesus that'd be cool i was like ah yeah then he gets nailed to the cross um all the people i like in history died in really horrendous ways um which is how I got to Socrates, because obviously Socrates was martyred for philosophy. He was charged with corrupting the youth in ancient Greece and told to go into exile. But Socrates was sitting there and he was like, nah, I don't think so, bro. I'm going to hang around. So then they killed him and he did it willingly. And he was the first philosophical martyr. I think I would like to be one of the guys in ancient Greece at that time. It's a time I find really interesting. It's a it's the birthplace of Western civilization. And there was just all these kind of characters and thinkers that came about. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Alexander the Great, Diogenes, all these just absolute brain boxes really for two thousand years ago. Um more than two thousand years ago at this point. But yeah, I'd like to go back to ancient Greece and just breathe in the air, see what it was that were that was driving all of them to make these discoveries. Because previous to that in human history, you didn't really have such a thriving culture. And I suppose you could look at it as the birthplace of culture. So I'd like to go back and see what was going on. Maybe I'll be Socrates and go around in a robes and sandals, just pissing people off. Just ruining people's days by asking them really annoying questions and questioning their presuppositions i say socrates nowadays is like the equivalent of a insane homeless person who's actually really good at philosophy that's that's how he lived his life and apparently his wife was really hortruculent she was like the kind of woman who would you'd come home and she'd have the bowling pin out and you'd be a oh, well bowling pin what am i on about a uh, rolling pin and uh swinging out your head but that was what uh socrates maintained made him such a good philosopher he'd say that you know she was a tough woman but she was honest and uh that was what he was questing for himself question number two have you ever heard of eric dubay no i have not is that the end of the question um i googled him and i'm not really sure what it is that he does he seems to be a writer um something about flat earth i don't know if he's in favor of flat earth or not but i guess i have a few thoughts on the flat earth thing uh, i wrote an article about it previously about why people would come to the belief that the earth is flat in the 21st century which is pretty interesting because i mean it's kind of like a revival of a really old idea that doesn't exist anymore because of the copernican revolution but yeah my point was that people that believe in a flat earth aren't just stupid they're not just idiots i mean a lot of them go to great lengths to try and prove it and have obviously a level of intelligence so there's something else going on underneath that and my argument was that if you lose your belief system this happens a lot to people in philosophy when they start studying philosophy and they get taught to be radically skeptical of everything 
so they just go about destroying their own belief system and then become really nihilistic and depressed because when you destroy your belief system or your belief system gets destroyed by say any sort of tragic event that can leave you cynical um even just the loss of faith in other people either through a relationship or just through you know you could i mean you probably do it through the media nowadays a loss of faith in a belief system causes you to lose faith in belief systems in general so once one belief system has been destroyed it's very hard to find another one and you just end up radically skeptical of everything so the way out of this because you'll see people that struggle to believe anything um, but the problem is that's not a solution because you do you need a belief system in order to maintain your emotions and all of our belief systems are flawed they're heuristics but you can have ones that are at least grounded as much as possible in a worldview that produces the outcomes that you desire to be produced you're in a state of order when your actions produce the results you want um, and you're in a state of chaos whenever your actions produce results that you don't want see what you know is really what you do rather than what you say so with the flat earth people the issue is they've obviously lost trust in the mainstream scientific establishment and it goes back so far that they doubt the copernican revolution in the first place so you've gone back to a a, a pre-science view of reality which actually makes sense i mean primitive people used to think of the world as kind of a flat disc with water underneath and around it and then water above because obviously the sky's blue and it kind of looks like water um but this is kind of a perceptual world it doesn't have a objective schemata of reality that's been abstracted and this is kind of what you end up with if you can't trust the traditional ideas of humanity if you've if you throw out everything that everybody else has learned and just focus on your sense data, um, if that's all that you trust, it's like maybe a radical kind of empiricism. Um, what you will end up with is a flat earth, but it's also to your own detriment because you should be skeptical of your own skepticism. I mean, what qualifies you to question the Copernican revolution? Do you know more than Copernicus? Do you know more than all of these scientists? Do you know more of than, uh, let's say, the last 300 years of scientific thought? Probably not. Um, probably you're just indulging your skepticism in everything possible. And what you should really do is start to think clearly about why you are so skeptical in the first place. And if it's your own issues with, trust or authority or whatever it is you got to realize that not everybody's lying to you all the time and if you think that it's more of a, a personal belief that you hold and so you need to interrogate that belief to find out its veracity because it's it's not a rational belief i mean it could be in theory people are wrong about things all the time conspiracies do happen and we hold even collective beliefs that are false, as exemplified by the flat earth belief previously, we are wrong about things a lot. We're not particularly well designed for objective truth. Um, we're more designed for a kind of Darwinian pragmatic truth, which is that what works is true rather than what's objectively true. But there's some uncalculated thoughts on the flat earth situation. I don't know who Eric Dubay is, and I'm not sure if he's if that's even his point so I, I may have absolutely rinsed him for no apparent reason and if so and if you're listening i'm sorry about this eric i, I did not mean to do that um when do we get the six counties back man tomorrow hopefully uh i wouldn't mind um <laughs> roll over in the morning to find out we've acquired the six counties again but yeah i mean living in the north has given me a different perspective on it I probably would have been more of a rebel rousing thinking yeah sure it's the right thing to do to write the historical injustice of partition and to just reunite ireland for the sake of it but there is a very complicated social situation and 
despite the fact that partition is a kind of cognitive dissonance and that the North can't heal until it actually does make a decision on that, um, I don't think now is the time, to be honest. I think there's too much going on. It it's Well, it's simultaneously the time because of Brexit, because it makes sense um, economically, but it doesn't... The social fabric isn't there yet. There's too much animosity, too much history, and the demographics are going more towards a Catholic majority in the North, and I think young people who would be a lot more progressive and would be maybe less burdened by the conflicts of the past will be more likely to opt for that option in the future. But the North is, I mean, it's outrageous, really. Like, you see murals celebrating partition. Partition absolutely destroyed the North. The North was one of the richest places in Ireland and had so many industries and had so much so much going for it. And then partition created this artificial situation where tribal conflict was inevitable and so many people were hurt and maimed really as a result. I don't I don't know how anyone can look at partition as anything more than an incredibly shameful and ridiculous thing to have done uh, to just bisect a country by drawing lines on a map and some sort of border commission. Um so I think the the opinion on that is changing. I mean loyalism isn't very adaptable. It's quite it's very set in its ways and that is a problem and fair enough i mean i think i don't have an issue with conservatism per se or with people having their culture or anything else i just see partition and having the island of ireland separated from itself as a an economic a philosophical and psychological failure and you can't simultaneously live on the island of ireland and believe yourself to be anywhere else it's it doesn't work it's conceptually incoherent for me and i understand that the uk is kind of a commonwealth of these different places but it doesn't to have that conflict between two sides in such a small space is you have to ignore it every day like when i walk to the shops and i see english flags everywhere um, or when it comes around to the 12th and there's uh, banners all over the place and everything and all flags and it just strikes me as so odd and not sustainable to have these two um, and not a sustainable worldview in the long run. Partition was a, sol- uh, a ham-fisted solution to a a, a demographics problem and I think eventually it's going to have to swing around because it's it's just not it's not a viable solution in the long run for the people or for you know anybody else but how that'll go and when that'll go i don't know i have no idea uh, i did write an article on it uh if you want to check it out is now the time for a united ireland mainly making an economic argument for it i mean i can make the rebel rousing you know it's an injustice which it is but i guess if it's going to be an ireland for all and an ireland shared between unionists and between nationalists and the kind of progressive ireland i think that a lot of us do aspire to which is one where people of any background can reside and that we can somehow do that peacefully i don't think it's just an option just to ram it through and see what happens but i think time is taking care of that i i hopefully the old wounds will mend but we'll see uh question number three what's your thoughts on manipulation do you believe there is a manipulative personality disorder well not a psychologist but as far as i understand a lot of personality disorders involve manipulation um what are my thoughts on manipulation well we're all kind of manipulated to a point in that we're not masters in our own houses. We're filled with desires and ideas and thoughts of other people that are 
not our own. And so it reminds me of the story of Pinocchio because um, Pinocchio is a puppet. He has strings and that's why he's pulled about by all of these forces that he can't control. And the goal for Pinocchio is to make him an authentic individual, a real boy. And that process involves getting over the strings that are pulling you. So people manipulating each other is unsurprising when people themselves are manipulated. Um, I guess manipulation can come on a couple of different levels. One that you try and manipulate reality to get what you want, which is something we're all familiar with. But then also the ethical problem of lying to people and manipulating people to get what you want. And also the idea that what you want is what you need, which is very subject to skepticism that you know definitively what it is that you want and that you can warp uh, people and reality to get it. It's a kind of moral failing. And I mean, we've all, as children, you're heavily manipulative where you're always trying to get your own way or, you know, you're kind of, you'll say whatever it is so you can have seven up in the morning for breakfast. But I guess you kind of learn that people react badly to that and that it's, you're not the absolute authority on what's best for you. There has to be this kind of interaction between other people and between life itself also. You you can't just say, oh, this is the one thing and this will be perfect. You need to leave a space for what you don't know and what could be all of the time. So yeah, manipulation, definitely a character flaw. Um, perhaps a forgivable one because we're all imperfect and not completely wise like socrates and people mistake what they want for what they really need and also i suppose there's another flip side to that which is if you're being manipulated how aware of that are you because there is if you are suspicious of somebody or if you're uncertain about their character and you allow them to control you or to make decisions for you when you're sub suspect of them. Um, how much are you complicit in your own manipulation? And that's not to say people can be very charismatic and very cunning and uh, very convincing. And maybe you get fooled once, but what's the old George W. Bush? Trick me once, shame on me. Trick me twice, can't get fooled again. Um, so... At, at a certain point as well, if you've been manipulated, you have to wonder, are you allowing yourself to be manipulated and why? You know, what are you getting out of it? Is it a covert kind of conspiracy of the whole thing? Uh, this would depend on the situation, obviously, but um, things to wonder. I mean, if you're ma manipulating people and reality, uh, what do you think you're going to achieve? Is it really worth achieving those ends? And you know, what's missing? What are you hiding from? What are you trying to cover up with these other desires and with using people to achieve them? Um, yeah, there'd be a lot of deep questions there about your relationships to other people and your your faith in life, possibly. Um, how have you found your second six months sober? Oh la la, it has been um very good to be honest i really settled into more of a rhythm with it um the first one i felt was a bit more revolutionary in that i felt i was kind of confronting more head on whereas this time it felt a bit more natural i didn't really settle back into drinking in the second six months when i did a couple of times um it felt like i was kind of pulling the wool over my eyes and that it was something which i'd actually gotten over so this second six months has kind of been focused largely around how to marry those two things i mean abstinence is one solution to the problem and it, it could be a pretty damn good one and it might have to be the only one but i also have some suspicions about that in the sense that sobriety can become a a religion in itself and also a way of covering up that I feel incapable of controlling myself. I mean, is the ideal situation to not do it at all or to have faith in myself that I'm capable of 
acting in accord with my own values. So that's what I've thought about a lot this time. Um, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that the, my new philosophy would be the words of Socrates, which is to enjoy in moderation what others have to take to excess. So like the Oracle of Delphi, nothing in excess. Um, to have only the positive effects of a pint with none of the downsides, with none of the avoidance of negative emotion, with none of the drive to push it over the edge all of the time to escape. Uh, one interesting thing which I've noticed now, which was different in the first six months, which was that, I don't know what the word is, but when you're dying for a pint on a Friday or Saturday and you get this you know, visceral anticipatory reward of going out drinking and you can feel the big rise and it's it's almost something you have to fight against like a wave or um some sort of big emotion that's gone now which is very cool i don't get that anymore or if i am feeling antsy or you know desiring a change of consciousness it's not drinking that i think about at all the emotional attachment to drinking is very little it I wouldn't say it's completely gone yet, which is also important to note, but it is so reduced, it's insane. And that in itself, I think, is a massive, massive boost because I, I don't know if you'd consider that physical addiction, psychological addiction. I mean, I definitely wasn't physically addicted to alcohol, but it's a kind of routine and an anticipatory reward of uh, feeding that routine. And that's very well slightly frightening i guess because i'd been on that weekend warrior buzz for god probably since i was 15 or 16 and had never done more really than a month off and um, so i never really got to grips with the the effects of how how deeply rooted that routine was in my psyche and even if you're not doing it even having that anticipatory reward stresses you out and makes it very hard to enjoy other things even if you're not drinking and not going out so getting over that i think has been one of the greatest accomplishments of this whole thing and just the the evenness of my mind and the evenness of my life is there isn't that drama of drunk and hung over and just not needing that has freed up so much space for all of the things that i want to do in my life my future that i believe so much more i mean you believe the things you tell yourself and you don't it's very easy when you're drinking to make excuses to warp your reality to in ways that are very that could just be you know anxiety or exhaustion or lack of motivation it's a very it's a precise instrument and when you fill it up with booze you create the possibility that you're going to tell yourself stories that aren't going to work when you're sober again either they're too grand or they're negative or they're self-destructive and you end up then with these almost two two personalities that you're fighting between the drunk one and the non-drunk one i was having a conversation at the weekend about this um thinking about originally when i was drinking i think i spoke about this with hannah in that podcast also um I idolized the person I was when I was drunk. I didn't like who I was when I wasn't drunk. I, I preferred myself when I was pissed because I had all the confidence, no self-consciousness. Um, I was more at home in myself. And this would have mainly probably been due to removing anxiety. But that was why I drank so much because it was a magic potion that changed who I was. And so it became a, a virtuous thing almost. It was like a kind of self-improvement that I'd attached meaning to this this object as a, a way of transforming my consciousness into something that I felt was better. But that's a very dangerous place to be in. Um, if you're going to alcohol looking for things like confidence, you're going to find a very poor solution because it doesn't doesn't fix any of the underlying problems or beliefs that you have about yourself that are causing your problems so less alcohol more stoicism that's what i'm saying man 
Um, next question. So, how are you going to balance your social life with training and writing now lockdown is easy? Uh, that's a very easy question. I don't have a social life. <laughs> I have a schedule of work all of the time. And that's actually probably not true, to be fair. Getting out brunch in, a couple of dinners and stuff. Um, I'm very much... I, get a, I derive a lot of my satisfaction from my work. So socializing for me a lot of the time is an add-on uh it's kind of the um about renewal and about refreshment and about connecting with people but a lot of my time is spent working anyway so thankfully with writing as you get better at it and as you do more of it you get more tactical i used to just write pages and pages and pages and pages all the time and most of it was shit and will never go anywhere but thankfully, I've already done that. So now I can be a bit more targeted about projects. I just understand how it works more. So it's more efficient and it takes less time. I try and write for 90 minutes a day. Um, and that's pure 90 minutes. Absolute focus. No phone, no nothing. Just getting completely in the flow state. So again, it's scheduling. You know, it's making sure you have enough hours in the day, but also making sure that you're not wasting time you know by frivolously procrastinating sitting on instagram all the time or by scheduling too much time for something that takes less time than it is i mean we're such as human beings we're always at kind of at war with our own self-deception and it's very easy to feel productive while actually not doing anything productive because then you get a double reward Biggest lessons learned during lockdown. Oh man, I, I wrote an article on that. Um, I think there's a podcast on it as well, actually. 20 lessons I learned during lockdown. I could not repeat all of them here. Lots of very interesting things about human nature, about myself, about isolation, also about tribalism and about the social fabric, about how quickly we fractionate the rise of authoritarianism. Um, I wrote another article actually making some predictions at the start of the pandemic about what I thought was going to happen. And some of them actually came through. I thought people would be more like germ adverse. That was something I got wrong. Thinking that people would be more like OCD. And I guess they were for a while. And maybe it's just sunken in now so we don't really notice it. You know, you stand further away from people and you're more less likely to give a handshake or a hug. And what effect that has for cohesion, for your feeling of connection and for just the the experience of other people at large as that was something that terrified me really was looking at other people as a threat all the time you know when you you'd go into the shop or something you'd be like looking at other people as the virus or people looking at you like look at this fucking big lump of virus walking in here i better stay away from him or he'll murder me or something i just felt it was such a concept creep and i mean it was marketed that way also i mean that annoyed me so much i think that's pretty irresponsible to be honest of um the government and of well i don't know if it was independent agencies or what they probably had a marketing team but to always equate that you know don't go out or you'll kill my grandmother kind of thing that attribution of responsibility was suspicious to me because on one level, yes, it's true, but we don't know, we just don't know the rules for that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of chaos has resulted from that. And I've just, yeah, in general about the pandemic and lockdowns, I've kind of just stopped thinking about it because it's, it's a fucked up situation and people made the best of a bad hand and that was it really. There wasn't anything else that could be done thankfully it's improving and vaccines and all that stuff and it looks like it's going the right way i guess the big question is is there going to be more lockdowns you know what happens if there's a bad flu do we all get locked down again those are upcoming problems and yeah who the hell knows but lots of lessons learned from that um greatest achievement so far oh that's a good question man um I one time I ran a race in Cuba when I was stinking hungover. Uh, I'd stayed up drinking till probably five in the morning, and the race was at eight o'clock, and I was still drunk. And uh, 
I started running the race thinking that the race had started, but it was actually the warm up and uh, I smoked everybody real badly. But then I got to the end of it and realized that was actually the start of the race. So I came second overall. And that was, I thought, pretty good <laughs> given the given the context of the the race. But greatest achievement so far. Um, getting selected for the Fringe Lab 50 was quite good. That was very nice for the play recently. Also finishing the Masters, I mean, that was pretty tough. So I can't say I have one defining moment as of yet i'm i have not won my oscar and which i'll be swanning around it'll be pretty hard to win an oscar writing books but hopefully they make an exception for me um rites of passage yeah this is cool man rites of passage is something that i think a lot about particularly the work of anthony stevens who wrote a book called the archetype the undiscovered self i think is the name of it i'm not sure anthony stevens but he's a an english analytic psychologist and he deals with that um he was one of the first people to be involved in evolutionary psychology as well he talks about the need for ritual in human development to initiate us from one stage to another and that a lot of modern mental illness is because people remain uninitiated from adulthood so because of our a lack of clear-cut initiation processes you can stay in kind of a state of arrested development permanently and he looked at his role as a therapist as a kind of shaman or initiator that it was his job basically to encourage people to confront the problems in their lives that were significant enough to initiate them into adulthood the point of an initiation is to face you with a problem so big that you can contextualize problems in general. You know what's a problem and what's not a problem. And to instill a feeling of competence. I mean, back in the day, that would have been sending somebody out into a cave to live for a week and possibly get eaten by a bear. But I think you can initiate yourself. So rites of passage, I mean, we have... You have all the silly ones, which is drinking beer and doing stupid stuff. Um, but I think you can initiate yourself into this way by changing your orientation towards what you're afraid of. If you're oriented towards getting away with things, you have to start to develop this kind of inner initiator or inner coach, you could look at it as. Um, inner coach, like your conscience, which instead encourages you towards what you're most fearful of. Um, by facing what you're most fearful of, you can initiate yourself into adulthood, whereas the opposite of that would be avoiding what you're fearful of and staying uninitiated. That's quite difficult to do because oftentimes we'll lie to ourselves, we'll make things up, we'll say, oh, you know, that doesn't matter, or that's not important, but what you're really doing is just talking it down because it is very important or you're very afraid of it. Or So spending a lot of time setting your fears. Tim Ferriss talks about this, the importance of fear setting. When the Knights of the Round Table go on the hunt for the Holy Grail, how they look for the Holy Grail, which is a, a representation of psychological wholeness, is they go into the part of the forest that looks darkest to them. So, I mean, the world's big and there's all these different, you know, how many ways into it and how many different places you can go and hierarchies and everything else. So you have to enter into the forest where it looks darkest to you. And that might be in your own soul. I mean, there is that aspect of psychoanalysis that forces you to contend with the things that you don't want to know about yourself. The unpalatable things that have happened to you in your life, the unpalatable things you've done. Um, and that could be where the forest is darkest. That would be kind of a Jungian perspective of making the unconscious conscious. But I think psychology is fulfilling the role of rites of initiation in our society, which is missing, which isn't a very good solution in my view. Not that it's a, a bad solution, but just think we should have more of a serious culture around it and something that makes sense martial arts is something that has rights of initiation built into it as well um like in ninjutsu we have that structure of 
white belt, green belt, you go through the queues and you get to black belt and then black belt you'll have to fight, you know, to do your randori in order to get the black belt and there's there's tests built into it. Um that can be a good way if you want to be initiated within a group. Um or the alternative is as an individual you can begin to take on what you're most afraid of. So maybe that's two different ways of doing it. Um Rites of passage, I suppose, when I was younger, is probably drinking 14 pints and waking up in a bin. And then people went, oh, yeah, that was pretty sick. <laughs> Irish unification, next 10 years, pipe dream or reality. Yeah, um, so we kind of thought about that one already. Next 10 years, I mean, there is that possibility because of Brexit and the difficulties that are coming about there that it could rush through a border pole. But I don't think that's a great idea, to be honest. Uh, I'd rather take a fractured peace than a whole civil war. And I mean, you can make the point that it wouldn't be a civil war. It would actually be criminal action because the Unionists did sign up to the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement holds in it a clause for a united Ireland if a border poll is successful. And that's the agreement. So you could look at it as a um as a contract of sorts and you know if the border poll is successful then that's what has to happen and um, whether or not the border poll will be successful i'm not sure i think it will definitely be successful in years to come just because of the changing demographics and the inability really of unionism to adapt to a modern context i mean look at evolution whoever doesn't adapt doesn't make it to the next round basically so i don't know um i'm sure arlene foster and poots now are tearing lumps off each other man i heard somebody say the funniest thing the other day that poots looks like the fai cup and now i just can't even look at photos of him without completely falling apart laughing he's really like emperor palpatine from fucking revenge of the sith but that's probably a different podcast. Um, if you weren't where you are now, where would you be? Uh, ancient Greece, again, I'd be chilling with Socrates and the boys. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had a really hard time trying to decide who I want to be and what I want to do. I have real shiny toy syndrome where you're like, oh, I I like this music. Maybe I'll become a musician. Or I'm like, oh, yeah, it was a good film. Maybe I'll become a film director. And I've really had to get over that kind of childishness of, always changing what it is that I want all of the time and really get to brass tacks about who I am and about what I do. Um, it would definitely be something creative. Um, I don't know if I could see myself living in America, but yeah, I don't know where, if you weren't where you are now, where would you be? Um, first thing that popped into my head there was on it on mars with elon musk if that was a chance <laughs> I, I don't know about that but yeah if i was anywhere else i mean if i was a different person it's difficult your character is in a sense your your destiny so getting to grips with it is quite important and i've had to really face the fact that i'm kind of an unusual character and that i'm very creative but i'm also very orderly so you know i always want to break things but i also can't stand a mess so I need a career that kind of supports that and allows me to be creative, but within a structured set. I mean, like the entrepreneurship has absolutely broken me up. I really, I don't think I have a great temperament for that to be my career. You know, some people thrive in it. I think I need a level of security that's more than that. So that's why I'm thinking about things like a PhD, academia, um, teaching, because it's something I'm passionate about, but it also gives me that level of security unless you know the entire country falls apart in which case that will not exist and um, then i will wander around like socrates like a homeless person asking really inconvenient questions of people um thoughts on bmx and skate being known as underground sports while other countries are embraced interesting yeah i mean that it's underground in ireland I suppose you look at the mainstream sports in Ireland and it's GAA, hurling, rugby. It's probably because there isn't a ball involved. It's kind of flies under the radar. I guess it would be down to popularity as well. I mean, Ireland's pretty old. Like we have this quite 
such a culture shock between the very traditional cultures of the past and then modern progressive people which are really at odds with each other like ireland in the 1950s was like a third world country i was just talking to my granddad the other day i was really interested um chatting with him about christianity and about you know what it was like when he grew up and he the way he described it was like he was just there was rules and people knew there was rules and there was boundaries that you lived within and you just knew that you didn't go over those boundaries because if you did bad things would happen i don't really think we have that anymore at all um so we're kind of in a state of trying to figure out what the rules are and there's all these new things popping up all the time constantly and it's a very creative and changing time so who knows maybe skateboarding and biking will become the new thing um i guess it's probably demographics as well like how many people do it and if you're hoping rte will do it man jesus christ i'm just thinking about that time pat kenny had some kid on to break dance and he said he was going to black it up jesus christ who put that one through huh but seriously bring back pat kenny love that dude ryan tuberty's a sham don't tell him i said that but um oh this dovetails nicely with the next question which is uh ireland as a progressive country yeah that's it i mean it certainly seems to be going that way um being progressive in itself i don't know it's it's a weird value system because you can just get caught in the fact that whatever is the latest fad is the most good and you have to keep changing the words you use and you have to keep saying things differently and you're just on this political correctness treadmill for the rest of your life i mean i like dudes like socrates and guys that lived 2000 years ago i think they got a lot of shit right i think their character was admirable but does are they progressive i mean they were progressive for their time but now they're literally classified as ancient history so i if you value things just because they're new you're not really thinking about them you're just kind of accepting whatever the latest fad is and that's a surefire way to end up believing some stupid shit um i mean come on man justin bieber type stuff so i think ireland being a progressive country is good and is something that i like the idea of an ireland for all even for unionists in the north that was an interesting thing that james nesbitt said during a debate on a united ireland in uh i don't know if it was cambridge or oxford or something but he said as a unionist you know he didn't feel like he'd been welcomed into united ireland he didn't feel like there was any place for a unionist there and that actually really made me think um made me think that you know maybe that argument hadn't been made and that was something because if it is going to be united ireland for all the unionists that live in the north are part of that all and it's not going to be a case where it's like like it or lump it we're gonna you know throw this in your face um we have to live together and so there can't be winners and losers in that sense because the winners are going to have to live with the losers and the losers are going to have to live with the winners so it yeah it's just i think just being progressive as an identity in itself isn't isn't enough you need to really think about your values you need to really think about what good and bad mean to you and where that's come from the same way with say a traditional or religious person should scrutinize the tradition that they come from also not in a stupid way like the flat earth thing where you're just skeptical of everything you have to be skeptical of your own skepticism you don't even get to sit on that bench um because there is gems and treasures as well as you know silly rules and can't eat fish on a friday type thing um, same is true of progressives there'll be good and there'll be bad and you as an individual have to evaluate those things and not just go along with them because other people think them it's very important to say what you think because what you think might be correct and who knows what's the truth it's only through this dialogue and through people saying well look this is the way i see it and this is the way i see it and a, a level of exploration that we get somewhere approximating a consensus so the real issue is orthodoxy always it's one-sidedness it's saying that this is the absolute truth and that's it and i i mean i guess the do i believe in absolute truth mm, 
probably not. But I do believe in, I suppose, a universalism, which would detail with absolute truths about human nature. But the the issue of being progressive or not progressive is maybe a a pseudo issue of another one, which is the issue of values and morality and what's good and what's bad. And what's good and what's bad is in what should you do that is good um what should you not do that is bad but also what those terms mean so it's a a meta-ethical question as well and we're fabulously unequipped for that in the modern world because progressivism doesn't have a long enough history of dealing with those questions really that's why i turn to ancient wisdom a lot of the time because it's old and it's been tested and it's had you know it's gone through so many transformations and some has survived, some has been lost and people have hammered out a kind of reliable pattern of behavior or mode of being in these ways. So that's the mode of being I'm after really is the, the one that stood the test of time and has a, lives in accord with my deepest values so that I can fulfill my potential. I spoke about Pinocchio earlier and that's something that's been on my mind lately. Um, it's Jordan Peterson thing, but, um, the Pokio, Pinocchio, Pokio, <laughs> he's a Pokemon now apparently. Um, the Pinocchio was a, an inauthentic individual. His strings were pulled by desire and by other people, which made him into a jackass. But then he goes down, he does something very interesting. He goes down to try and rescue his father. His father, Geppetto, was a a puppet maker. He made him, but he did a thing when he made him was that he wished upon a star that he would be a real boy. And the star is interesting. The star is the highest value. The star is the thing that guides you in the night. So it's what is most important to you. And for Geppetto, the most important thing to him was that Pinocchio became an authentic individual. And there's something in that. There's something in that that relates to the Christian idea of agape, which is a kind of parental love. The love for something outside of yourself to grow, as a as opposed to the other kind of love, which would be eros, which is kind of like a consumptive love, like you want to eat somebody up completely. Or... Uh, philos which is a kind of love of uh, a platonic kind of love but this agape is a love like a parental love that this parent loves and wants him to be you know what he could be the realization of his full potential and that that is the highest good that he can conceive of who this puppet this you know this obviously flawed inauthentic thing could actually become a real real individual and that's what happens through the story through uh, pinocchio sacrificing himself to try and get his old stupid father from the belly of the whale um, and i guess the the uh, it's just become more complicated for me than you can say that new things are good and old things are bad or that progress is defined by time um it isn't good ideas come about and are lost and so you got to take it seriously man it's not just fashion it's not just something you can try on you got to really get to grips with your own values and what they mean and what your beliefs are that are false and who you could be uh what your potential is fully on this earth and what it would take to realize it and what you would have to change in order to realize it that is the the deepest truth beyond anything so that's the fucking Ireland I'd like to see, bro. Fucking Ireland becoming a real boy. That'd be pretty sick. But, uh, yeah, last question. What's next for you? Ooh, load. So I got have a project coming up at the Lyric Theatre, um, digital theatre with Conan McIver and a bunch of other talented people um, about young men during the pandemic. And that'll be starting up soon, a digital theatre production. Obviously, I'm waiting for the offo. We didn't get into the Fringe Festival, unfortunately, this year. So it's back to the drawing board. We're still pursuing it viciously, and we're going to hopefully put it on for Smock Alley or some other type of um, festival that will be upcoming in Ireland. So you will see it on stage someday. 
when it is ready. And thank you again to the people who donated. I have not stolen your money. It is resting in my account. Um, <laughs> it just reminds me of Father Ted. Like, and, uh, it's the last raffle I went to. The people who organized the raffle actually won the raffle. It's uh, it's not uncommon. But um, yeah, it is resting in my account. And we are going to use it for something spectacular. I also have, I mean, I was messing around today with a the idea of a non-fiction book. I mean, I'd started out writing fiction, short stories, um, plays, uh, working on a novel. Um, and I really love fiction, but at some point I've just only been reading non-fiction and everything that I've been doing with the blog and with the podcast really is falls into that category. So I'm toying around the idea of a non-fiction book looking at yeah meta narratives looking at how we make sense of the world and how we can have a shared shared sense making structure that will prevent against the fragmenting effects of technology and tribalism which are rising everywhere and as things become more decentralized how you can find a way to connect the dots rather than to have a completely fragmented society and fragmented individuals really um a, I, see, I have an idea emerging in me that hopefully will be useful for people and so that's what i'm exploring next and possibly that'll be as part of a phd if somebody will pay me to do it which would be exceptional so yeah that's about all of it thanks millions of the people who sent questions in they were really interesting that was pretty sick i'll definitely do it again sometime and i hope there's some interesting stuff there for you that you could sink your teeth into um if you enjoy the podcast if you enjoy these chats and different ideas please click the follow button on spotify or wherever it is or follow me along on instagram at man underscore mccann gonna keep throwing ideas out there and hopefully get to the bottom of it boom